Welcome to the Living Healthy Podcast, where you can improve your quality of life by making solid and informed decisions. I'm your host, Eddie Randall. Thank you for joining me for part two of this two-part podcast series, Food Allergies, Environmental Allergies, and Autoimmune Diseases, What You Can Do, Part Two. The most common environmental allergies will be the first topic. The most common environmental allergies are pollen, dirt, irritants, dust, dust mites, mold, and pet dander. Pollen can be a huge problem for millions of allergy sufferers. Angiosperms, which are flowering plants, contain male and female parts. Plants cannot get up and find mates for themselves, so their biological makeup helps to create future generations. The male part producing sperm is the stamen, and the female part contains ovules. The stamen produces pollen, which can be a yellow dust that can travel through the air by wind or to neighboring plants by insects. Pollen is everywhere and is more noticeable during pollen season. During this time, meteorologists may talk about a pollen count during weather forecasts so you can plan your day. Pollen count is collected on a device called a rotor rod and it is measured by the number of pollen collected in a cubic meter of air within a 24-hour period. Pollen allergy symptoms include a runny nose, cough, itchy throat, fatigue, sneezing, and itchy, red, watery eyes. Doctors do not quite understand why the body mistakes pollen as an antigen when pollen is relatively harmless, especially when some people have allergies while others do not. Instances like this have given rise to the hygiene hypothesis. It was formulated in 1989 by Dr. David Strachan. He stated that during childhood, a lack of infection could explain the rise of allergic reactions later in life. What it boils down to is being too clean can cause the immune system to mistake harmless things as enemies to the body. This is another reason why vaginal births are more beneficial than C-sections. I was talking about this in a past podcast discussing women's health. Please check that two-part podcast series out if you haven't done so already. During the birth process, the baby passes through the mother's floor. This bolsters the baby's immune system and helps give the baby what it needs to get through life. In relation to C-section births, the baby picks up skin floor from the mother as well as any organism that happens to be in the delivery room. This is why using hand sanitizer and antibacterial soap all the time is not good. It's the same reason why it's not a good idea to abuse antibiotics. The normal flora of the body is thrown off and certain bacteria and pathogens can become opportunistic. Certain things can throw your immune system out of whack and doctors still don't know what will allow cancer cells to thrive untouched by the immune system while harmless things are identified as antigens and attacked. Dust is made up of dead skin, soil particles, bacteria, hair fibers, clothing fibers, PFAS, aka polyfluoroalkyl substances, dust mites, and dust mite waste. 
Dust and dust mite allergies cause symptoms such as sneezing, itchy, watery eyes, runny nose, sinus congestion, coughing, and postnasal drip. Dust can exacerbate other allergy symptoms such as asthma. Those symptoms include shortness of breath, wheezing, and chest pain. Keeping a clean home is ideal in limiting dust and dust mite exposure. However, immediately after sweeping or vacuuming is when the air will be full of dust that you cannot see with the naked eye. It is best to exit a room that you've just swept or vacuumed immediately after and return a few minutes later. Changing your sheets often and buying a handheld vacuum to use on your mattress and box spring will also help to limit or eliminate your exposure to dust mites. You can also limit the amount of carpeting in your home as mites love carpeting due to the dead skin cells that naturally fall and become embedded in the carpeting. Mold is fungus and the spores are everywhere. It's even found in soil and household dust. The Environmental Protection Agency states that mold can be found everywhere, particularly, particularly where there is water and oxygen. They can grow on literally any surface, including plaster, wood, cardboard, tile, carpet, upholstery, and concrete. There are thousands of different types of molds. Mold can be a big problem for people. Um, some people have no response to it, while others suffer allergic reactions. One particular type of mold that can literally affect everyone, regardless of hypersensitivity, is Stachybotrys chartarum more commonly known as black mold. Black mold is very bad and commonly associated with house flooding or a leak somewhere in the walls that can create conditions suitable for the mold to grow and proliferate. Aside from that, common mold which is ubiquitous can cause symptoms such as a runny nose, sneezing, itchy, watery eyes, coughing, skin rashes, fatigue, and if you already have asthma, it can exacerbate that condition. Pet allergens consist of the protein in dead skin cells, saliva, and urine. These proteins have the potential to become an allergen when a person becomes hypersensitive to one or all. If you own a pet, then pet dander is everywhere in your home, even in dust, just like human skin cells. Short-haired dogs would be less prone to shedding, and in turn, that would diminish the chances of developing an allergy. Pet allergy symptoms include congestion, hives, runny nose, sneezing, wheezing, chest tightness, as well as runny and watery eyes. It's best to avoid pets if you have pet allergies. Insects play a huge role in our ecological system, but they can be quite a nuisance, especially for those who suffer from allergic reactions. There are insects that sting, like bees, yellow jackets, and wasps. There are also insects that bite, such as mosquitoes, fleas, and bedbugs. Normal reactions can occur, and a person can recover in a few hours or a few days. If you're stung by a bee, removing the stinger immediately can reduce the amount of bee venom that you're exposed to. A normal reaction is pain, swelling, and redness. A person that is not allergic may also develop cellulitis. I bring this up because many people have misdiagnosed as being allergic when they actually have developed cellulitis. Cellulitis is actually a bacterial infection that becomes opportunistic when the skin is broken 
and suffers damage. The most common bacteria that causes cellulitis is Staphylococcus aureus. A person who is allergic can exhibit symptoms such as shortness of breath, a rapid heart rate, a rash that can develop and spread beyond the infected area, as well as swelling of the throat. Allergies and cancer risk. I was talking about this a little earlier when I was talking about the immune system identifying harmless things such as pollen as an antigen, and in some instances, uh, cancer cells do not get recognized. That being said, people with allergies are less likely to have certain cancers. Some believe that allergies in some way helps to fight off cancer. There's an article by Susan Lang that was published by Cornell University called The Miseries of Allergies Just May Help Prevent Some Cancers, Study Finds. She states that Dr. Paul Sherman and his team concluded that eczema, hives, hay fever, animal, and food allergies were associated with lower rates of cancer. She further states that Dr. Sherman stated that the allergy symptoms help the body fight off cancer by removing foreign particles from the body. As I stated in the first episode of this podcast, hypersensitivity happens when the immune system recognizes harmless things such as pollen. Given that cancer and cell growth have so many variables and factors and intertwine to form the variability and invariability of genetics, it may just be that those harmless particles are not so harmless after all, and man has just not discovered the actual link. There are so many things that we know based on science and theory. And on the other hand, there are so many things that we don't know, and this is the reason why we hypothesize. There could be a connection that could be caused by the hypersensitivity of the immune system, which could hamper cancer cells and not allow them to grow and proliferate. Judith Schwarzbaum is an epidemiologist at Ohio State University. She studied blood samples of people who had allergen-specific antibodies in their blood and found out that the research subjects were 25% less likely to develop gilomas, which are brain tomas. I find it absolutely fascinating, given this information, as there appears to be a link between having allergies and being less likely to develop cancer. As much as man knows about the human body, cancer, and the immune system, there is so much more that we do not know. The human body is so complex and integral, and its replete vastness of one system depending on the other. It makes sense as the body overreacts to things and allergic reactions, and this overreacting attacks and tries to remove things from the body. So cancer cells, or precursors to cancer cells, might be targeted and eliminated, thereby lowering the chances of developing certain cancers. On healthcenter.org.uk, they state that researchers have shown that men with asthma are at a decreased risk for developing stomach cancer than men with, and also rather, that men with eczema are at a decreased risk for developing lung cancer. Allergies and climate change. When the seasons change, there is an uptick in allergic reactions due to pollen, insects, mold, and dander. As the climate gets warmer due to climate change, this event can prolong allergy season and exacerbate symptoms. Heat naturally rises 
and particles of all types can be more easily dispersed in the air. To put this into perspective, think of it this way. Say one morning you walk outside and you see several mushrooms growing in your yard. You know you didn't plant them. You typically ignore them, and then one day in the next week or so, you go outside and you don't see them anymore. The wind carries mushroom spores, and they settle into soil and grow. Warm temperatures heat the air, allowing particles to disperse, and gusts of wind aid in moving those particles, and in this case spores, and allows them to settle into different areas. So, one may be thinking, what will become of allergies with increasing climate change? We can expect allergy symptoms to possibly last longer, be more severe, and possibly affect more people. The Asthma and Allergy Foundation of America state that from 1995 to 2011, rising temperatures in the United States have caused pollen season to extend 11 to 27 days longer. Plants thrive on CO2. However, too much CO2 can hurt plants. The increased CO2 causes an increase in temperature and pollen production, thus extending allergy season. ClimateCentral.org states that atmospheric CO2 levels are at 410 parts per million and can reach 600 parts per million within 40 years at the current rate we're going. The burning of fossil fuels releases toxins, making air, water, and soil quality bad for all and worse for people with allergies. Not only will the toxins and or contaminants deteriorate water, air, and soil quality, if the air itself is highly contaminated, then allergy symptoms can only linger and get worse with time. On AllergyAsthmaBoston.com, there's an article by Mia Shearer called The Impact of Climate Change on Allergies. She states that air pollution promotes allergenic proteins contributing to severe allergy symptoms. With increased population, we can expect to see an increase in climate change which is inevitable. However, level of climate change and carbon footprint can be responsibly managed and innovative ways can be put into place to curb this change. That being said, you don't always see an increase in allergies unless there is causation. Doctors are seeing an increase in allergies among patients. Sephardi, Bloodheart, Ewart, and others published a survey on the annals of the American Thoracic Society. They stated that they sought answers from pulmonologists and other specialists and determined over half of the healthcare providers reported an increase of allergies that they believe are in association to climate change. Asthma. I discussed asthma in the first part of the podcast and I'm mentioning it a bit more here. Asthma is an overreaction of the immune system and is the most common allergic reaction. It is the inflammation of the airway which causes, um, excuse me, which makes it very difficult to breathe. However, it is not an autoimmune disease. It is a heterogeneous disease, meaning it can have several different causes. Asthma, also known as extrinsic asthma, is the most common form of asthma. Doctors do not completely understand what causes asthma. However, they do know that it's triggered by IgE. Reiterating from the first part of the podcast, 
is caused by certain foods, mold, ragweed, dust, dirt, cigarette smoke, pollen, and poor air quality. The other type of asthma is intrinsic asthma. This is the type of asthma that is non-allergic. It is often caused by the common cold, the flu, dust, stress, anxiety, as well as temperature change. I wanted to take a moment to say thank you for supporting the podcast. The Living Healthy Podcast is listed on many platforms, including Anchor, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Bullhorn, and many others. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest. And don't forget to check out the Living Healthy Podcast channel on YouTube. Also, if you have any questions or would like me to discuss a particular topic or you'd like to be a guest on the show, please contact me at livinghealthylivinghealthy at gmail.com. Autoimmune disease. Autoimmune disease, also known as autoimmunity, is when the immune system mistakenly sees its own healthy tissue as foreign and elicits a response to attack. Doctors are not completely sure what causes autoimmune disorders to occur. However, there are precursors such as genetics, infections, and environmental factors that activate certain white blood cells that attack healthy tissue. On hopkinsmedicine.org, they state that factors such as genetics, weight, smoking, and medications can trigger the immune system. Since healthy tissue is the target, it's hard to understand how the body can view it as a self-antigen. The immune system can produce autoantibodies that can attack any part of the body, including the pancreas, liver, lungs, thyroid, kidneys, and joints, to name a few. The body is replete with proteins, and the body's ability to distinguish itself from foreign proteins is vital. When the ability breaks down, autoimmune disorders are the result. Genes are like little file cabinets, and certain segments of genes contain information within. This information can help to control immunity, disruptions, errors in coding, and loss of information within genes are possible precursors that allow autoimmunity to occur. Having a family member that has an autoimmune disorder increases your chances of developing one. However, that is not always the case. This conclusion has been drawn by the fact that autoimmune disorders do tend to run in families, but with exceptions. On the John Hopkins Medical Pathology website, they state that twins have a 2% to 8% chance of developing an autoimmune disorder while identical twins have a 25-50% to 50 chance of developing an autoimmune disorder. They end by saying that there is no definitive pathway showing the direct outline of inheritance and that there are other factors that play a role. This is why in science we have hypotheses. This is literally illustrating the certainty of uncertainty. Things like this make me appreciate how beautiful and marvelous we are as human beings. We are perfect in our imperfections. In addition, women tend to have autoimmune disorders at an exponential rate than men. On the Office of Women's Health website, womenshealth.gov, they state that women are more prone to develop autoimmune disorders in relation to men. 
they go on to further state that women who are within childbearing years are the common group among women that are most affected. That tells me that there could be a possible link between estrogen and progesterone, which are two of the most plentiful hormones within uh, that women possess. However, women outside of childbearing years, children, and men can also develop autoimmune disorders. Herein lies the dilemma of what is the actual cause. This leads science to observe that genetics, especially in regard to its replete threshold of information and exponential variability, could be a potential cause for autoimmunity. Infections can lead to autoimmunity. Sometimes pathogens can carry proteins, DNA structure, segments, or sequences that can mimic healthy tissue. The result is an immune response that targets healthy cells and tissues. It is also possible that the immune system can become compromised depending on the severity of the bacteria or virus involved. This can result in damaging or short-circuiting of normal responses to pathogens, causing them to self-attack or self-destruct. Repeated infections can cause the immune system to overreact. An infection could damage and infect tissue so badly that a cytokine storm can start. This can result in inflammation and possible autoimmunity. As with genetics, there is no clear pathway, or in this case, pathogen or infection, that solely determines an autoimmune disorder's pathology. In addition, not everyone who develops an infection will develop an autoimmune disorder. An epitope is the portion of the antigen that attaches to an antigen receptor on a B cell or T cell. It's also known as an antigenic determinant. One antigen can have many epitopes on its surface. Single antibodies are not made to combat the entire antigen. Rather, they are made to attack or recognize particular parts of the antigen, namely the epitope. This is why one antigen can have multiple epitopes. Epitope spread happens when the immune system expands its response beyond the epitopes that were initially recognized by T and B cells. The result is that epitopes on foreign proteins and epitopes on self-proteins are recognized as foreign. This includes recognizing hidden epitopes on proteins, which is intramolecular spreading, and recognizing other proteins, which is intermolecular spreading. This culminates in the initiation of an autoimmune disease. Bystander activation occurs when an infection takes place and T cells that are not specified to that antigen are activated by cytokines without specificity. Essentially, inflammation activates these T cells rather than an antigen. SARS-CoV-2 the virus that causes COVID-19 is believed to cause autoimmune disorders. If you remember at the outbreak of the pandemic, many people began suffering from blood clots and other unexplained ailments. Weeks and months after those who've survived were deemed to be dealing with long COVID, where memory issues, exhaustion, and other unexplained ailments were reported. This could be best described as the result of inflammation from a cytokine storm. There's an article on MedArchive by Bergamaschi, Messia, Turner, and others called Delayed Bystander CD8 T-Cell Activation 
early immune pathology, and persistent dysregulation characterize severe COVID-19. They state that T-cell activation is related to inflammation in regard to infection as well as autoimmunity. They go on to state that this has been seen in patients who've suffered from COVID-19. On GoodRx.com, there's an article by Dr. Christina Palmer called, Can COVID-19 Infection Cause Autoimmune Disease? She states that COVID-19 can cause autoimmune disorders. She goes on to state that 50% of people infected with coronavirus have autoantibodies in their blood. Environmental factors can also cause autoimmune disease. These factors can count for over 60% of autoimmune disorders. Environmental factors include food, weather, pollutants, water quality, air pollution, and consumer products, just to name a few. The body produces billions of cells a day with the constant transcription of DNA and energy production. When this happens, errors could also be made. These errors are highly influenced by environmental factors. The largest factor is with consumer goods. Among consumer goods is a chemical called bisphenol A, more commonly known as BPA. It is everywhere and in pretty much any product that contains plastic. It's used to hard plastic and it's even used in the lining of canned foods. What makes this so dangerous is that BPA is a toxic chemical that can cause neurological disorders, immune disorders, fertility disorders, and is a known endocrine system disruptor. That being said, it's no longer used in baby bottles. The Food and Drug Administration banned its use in child products back in 2012. It's only banned in children's bottles, but is common is a commonplace rather in plastic food containers, plastic bottles, and as I stated a moment ago, the lining of canned food products. The FDA states that BPA is safe in small amounts. That being said, BPA is everywhere and is very hard to have a limited exposure to that chemical. On the U.S. Library of Medicine's website, there's an article by Vojdandi, Pollard, and Campbell called Environmental Triggers and Autoimmunity. They state that 90% of Americans have BPA in their urine and that BPA is an endocrine disruptor that can affect health of babies, children, and adults. BPA can mimic hormones. As broken down, it looks like estrogen, and the body can acknowledge it as such. However, the body cannot use it and will not act, interact with it the same way as it does with estrogen. BPA can also alter the immune system, which can lead to autoimmune disorders. There's an article by Z, Hang, and Goyle called Develop Developmental Bisphenol A Exposure Modulates Immune-Related Diseases. They state that BPA exposure has caused it to be found in breast milk, and it alters the immune system involving T-cell regulation and cytokines. They go on to state that it influences the propensity to develop type 2 diabetes, allergies, asthma, as well as breast cancer. Now, I will list some of the most common autoimmune disorders. Psoriasis. Psoriasis is an autoimmune disease type 4 delayed cell-mediated disease. 
It's an overproduction of skin cells that results in scaly silver skin. The surrounding area may be red, itchy, and inflamed. Some people also experience joint pain. This joint pain is psoriatic arthritis and can result in people um, that have psoriasis. The areas of the body most commonly affected are the scalp, face, hands, elbows, and knees. Rheumatoid arthritis. This is another autoimmune disorder where the immune system attacks healthy joints. Women are mostly affected and this condition can start as early as age 30. It is a debilitating disease and can cripple as it can cause the joints in the hands and feet to twist and deform. Pain, stiffness, swelling, and loss of use are some of the more common symptoms. In my time in healthcare, I've had quite a few patients that get infusions for this condition. Guillain-Barre syndrome. It is rare and this condition is happens when the auto, when the immune system attacks the nerves or more or less the central nervous system. The nerves have a covering on them called a myelin sheath. The immune system attacks the nerves mistaking them for foreign antigens. This results in muscle weakness and, in worst-case scenarios, paralysis. Symptoms include neuropathy, which is the pins and needles feeling you feel when your foot falls asleep, uh, weakness, fatigue, and urinary incontinence. Hashimoto's disease. This is where the immune system attacks the thyroid gland. Hyper or hypothyroidism can result from this condition. The thyroid gland can become damaged and deregulate hormone production. This condition is more common in women than men. Symptoms include a goiter, weight gain, hair loss, cold intolerance, and an irregular menstrual cycle. Within the last year and a half since the pandemic, there has been information surrounding thyroid disease and COVID-19. Obviously, as time goes on and more information on long COVID and more research studies are conducted, we will have more information on ailments uh, due to the virus. However, this is significant because we've never dealt with a virus like this before and infections can cause autoimmune disorders. On the American Thyroid Association, they state that there were two studies involving patients with COVID-19 in Italy in the ICU back in 2020. As you may recall, Italy was a hotspot for the virus at one point. They go on to state that abnormal thyroid function is common with patients with the coronavirus infection. They conclude by stating that COVID-19's relation with immune activation may cause an inflammatory response resulting in hyperthyroidism. Lupus. Lupus occurs when the immune system attacks any organ. This can include your skin, heart, lungs, liver, joints, kidneys, etc. This disease affects women at an exponential rate in juxtaposition to men. Symptoms include rashes in different parts of the body, joint pain, shortness of breath, chest pain, cancer, as well as brain, kidney, and liver issues. I went into more detail, including the four types of lupus in part one of this podcast. If you missed that, I ask that you please check out part one of the podcast to get that information. Multiple sclerosis. MS is a debilitating disease where the immune system attacks nerve cells. 
the immune system actually attacks the nervous system, namely the brain and spinal cord. Symptoms include neuropathy, tremors, difficulty walking, incontinence, vision problems, fatigue, muscle spasms, pain, and speech issues. This is another disease that affects women more than men. Uh, people who smoke, people who have a vitamin D deficiency, and people who have a family member with this disease are predisposed to developing the dis this disorder. There are four types of MS. Number one is the clinically isolated syndrome. This is where someone has their first encounter with the disease. It's classified as type one because not everyone who has their initial encounter goes on to experience another episode. Number two is relapsing remitting MS. This is the most common form and happens as the condition uh, comes and goes. Number three is primary progressive MS. This is where the patient's, condi patient's condition worsens and nerve damage proliferates and there is no, no relapse. The final type is secondary progressive MS. This is where the damage to the nerve increases this also involves periods of relapse and remission. Allergies and blood type. When I'm talking about allergies and blood type, I'm talking about an allergic reaction when getting incompatible blood. Now there are blood types A, B, AB, and O. This coincides with an RH factor that will either be positive or negative. Type A will have A surface markers on the red blood cells and anti-B antibodies in the plasma. Type B will have B markers and anti-A antibodies um, in its defense. Type AB will have AB markers and will have no antibodies. Type O will have no markers and will have A and B antibodies protecting it. The presence of an RH factor in the blood means you are positive. If you do not have this factor, then your blood type is negative. If you get a transfusion in the hospital, your blood will be typed in order to prevent any life-threatening events from taking place. As an example, if you are AB negative, you can only have you can only receive AB negative, A negative, B negative, or O negative blood types. If you receive AB, A, B, or O positive blood, you will have an allergic reaction. You can experience pain, chills, fever, jaundice, a low heart rate, and difficulty breathing. Allergies and medications. Some medications can cause an allergic reaction, such as hives, itching, blistering, fever, nausea, vomiting, and difficulty breathing. Uh, these are some of the more common uh, reactions to medications. A more severe reaction can include anaphylaxis. What you can do to curb food allergies. If you have an allergy to a particular food, it's ideal to avoid that food. I know it can be easier said than done, but given the severity of the allergic reaction uh, and with death uh, being a potential result, it would be ideal to not eat that particular food. You can eat a replacement food. Um, as an example, if you have a peanut allergy, you can substitute pumpkin seeds um, in its place, or if you like peanut butter and jelly, you can substitute peanut butter with sunflower seed butter or almond butter. Don't let an allergy to a favorite food get you down. There are suitable substitutes out there. You may have to go to an organic supermarket and it might be a tad pricey. 
However, once you look past that and adjust to the substitute, after a while, you will not uh, be able to tell the difference and your immune system will love you for it. Uh, years ago, if someone had a gluten intolerance, it could limit your menu choices as there is gluten in almost everything. Now you can go to an organic food store and find whole sections and in some cases, uh, entire aisles of gluten-free foods. Uh, gluten allergies can include abdominal pain, nausea, headaches, bloating, diarrhea, and constipation. Now what you can do to curb environmental allergies. There are many simple and easy things that you can do to curb allergies and mitigate or prevent allergies from doing harm. It's recommended to change your AC filter in your home one time every three months. You can replace it more often if you suffer from allergies. Not only will this make the air you breathe cleaner, it can also help allow your AC system to last longer. You can do the same with your car. As part of the maintenance packages, the dealers will charge you um, to change your in-cabin your in air filter in accordance to manufacturer recommendations. Depending on what you drive, you can change it yourself and you can change it more often. Your in-cabin air filter being changed on a regular basis will help um, you to breathe cleaner and limit your exposure to allergens. There are so many pollutants that your car's in-cabin in air filter is exposed to. Anything from bird droppings, dirt, mold, car exhaust, chemicals spilled from work trucks, road debris, leaves, etc. Uh, using a dehumidifier can help to limit mold spores and moisture in the air by removing moisture from the room. It also limits allergens and irritants in the air and alleviate allergy symptoms. On Healthline.com, they state that dehumidifiers help to alleviate allergy symptoms such as sneezing, irritated eyes, and itching. Air purifiers are also a great way to help clean the air in your home. Some work by trapping irritants in the air, and others go a step further by sanitizing the particle once it's been trapped. They can remove odors, irritants, dust, dander, and pollutants from the air in your home. As with a dehumidifier, air purifiers help to lessen the effects of allergens. The thing to be mindful of is to try to avoid the ones that produce ozone. Ozone can scar the lungs of healthy people and pets and downright worsen allergy symptoms of allergy sufferers. Not all air purifiers produce ozone. You have to do a little research as to not get an air purifier that does. The air purifiers that do will state that they are ozone generators, are super oxygenated, or that they are ionizing air, air purifiers. There are many terms that manufacturers use that mean the same as ozone. So again, you'll have to do your research to avoid getting one. Another way to help cut down on allergies, in particular skin allergies, is to use detergent and soap specifically made for sensitive skin. I worked with a nurse years ago who could not use soap on her face as the soap would make her break out. Uh, being able to wash your face with soap is something that you know many of us take for granted. Now, this was about 15 years ago. Um, now they have whole sections of soaps and detergents for sensitive skin. So there are many options out there for people, um, which is a great thing. Medications for environmental allergies. Thank God that medicine has advanced to the point where we can offer remedies to alleviate or mitigate allergy symptoms. 
Some of the most common allergy medications are corticosteroid creams for skin conditions and corticosteroid nasal sprays that can relieve congestion and a runny nose. Others include antihistamines in spray and pill form that can relieve a runny nose, itchy watery eyes, and sneezing. There are also decongestants available in pill and liquid form that relieve congestion and difficulty breathing. And finally, there is immunotherapy, where you would visit an allergist slash immunologist and have an allergy test performed to diagnose what you are allergic to, and the nurse or doctor would administer shots every few weeks or so. That's going to do it for part two of this two-part podcast. I want to thank you for listening to the Living Healthy Podcast. I wish you all a happy Thanksgiving. Stay safe, stay healthy, and I'll see you next time. And remember, living healthy creates a better you.